morning all.
when fires were lighted every day to the glory of God. And in the splendid action of faith, the wicked heretics were burnt. Dostoevsky's being sarcastic. Jesus shows up. He comes back and walks the streets of Seville. And people are uh, drawn to him. It says, Dostoevsky says, he came softly. Yet everyone recognized him. And they gathered around him and they went to him. And they asked for healing. And there's a couple little stories, and he heals people. Doesn't really say much at all. And the Grand Inquisitor notices the crowd and sends, it says, his gloomy soldiers to arrest Jesus. They put him in prison. And most of this chapter of the Grand Inquisitor is the next day, the Grand Inquisitor going and sitting outside Jesus' cell, wherever he was and speaking to Jesus, and Jesus never says a word. And the Grand Inquisitor explains faith and religion and the church and people to Jesus. He says, look, it took us 15 centuries to straighten out your mess. But now people know what they need, and we're in charge. There's a really wonderful parallel to the temptation of the desert that he uses to frame this, but he says, you did this terrible thing when you were here. You made people think they were free. We straighten it out. In his last words to Jesus, he doesn't say a word. He says, tomorrow you will burn on the embers. Get to why I share that a little bit. The second thing I'm not as happy to share. Um, and that's an image to leave with you. And I just need to say two words. Here are the words. Dirty sheets. Um, should make you go, oh, unmentionable. We've mentioned a couple of beginnings in our series in Acts two or three so far, a couple of places. There's a room where the Holy Spirit comes in power and people start speaking in the languages of others who are gathered, who have a different language than them, and they recognize this intimacy that's between them. There are two roads. We've been on the road with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. God saying, no one is outside of my love or grasp, and Philip chasing his chariot. And the other road, Saul's conversion to Paul, the road to Damascus, and Kim is a small church material reminding us that this wasn't like a solitary person taking, you know, that had action in his conversion. This was a whole community of people. We have two words to set the context of our working through Acts. One is diaspora, that the people were scattered, the time and the place and the certainty that they've known for years in their lives have been broken and they were scattered around. Persecution was happening as well. The other word is empire, so diaspora and empire, that everything in their lives was touched and defined by empire, which meant Rome. And so we said for us, that word empire would mean something different today, not Rome, maybe the economy, whatever it might be, touching everything. And today there's another beginning, in some ways the most significant of all. For those who were there at the wider embrace night on Wednesday, Connie mentioned a meeting in Acts chapter 15 that's very um, important. 
Basically, what happens in our story today is so upsetting to so many people that the church has to have a meeting. I've had many of those. It seems like something really good happened there. I think God might even be involved. Let's meet and decide. And in Acts chapter 15, there's a meeting to decide what to do about this. Acts chapter 10. What I'm hoping for is that God has for us a time where there's a new way to live our faith that we haven't yet discovered. Parallel to this. This story, well, it's the rooftop of a tanner. And a tanner, by the way, is dirty and outcast as well. Right? Lepers and people who have the wrong jobs. A house by the seaside sounds lovely, but it didn't mean lovely in that time. It meant you could, you know, put the waste out to sea. Because tanning was dirty business. And Peter was staying there. That's one place, and the other is the house of a military man. And there'll be a meeting there. And I say this, I was praying at this this morning before you all got here, and remember us were here, and sitting off on the side, and I was looking at it knowing that people would be coming here and knowing that we would not be here in this room if this event that we're describing today did not happen. So those are the places, and there's two main characters. There are other characters as well. There's Peter the Apostle, follower and friend of Jesus, religiously conservative, temperamentally impetuous, always giving his all for Jesus. And making sure that other people are keeping the right way. Remember in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus says, begins to say to his followers, Peter's one of the first ones, that he, he's revealing his mission, that he says, I'm going to die. And Peter, being the good religious follower, says, no, you won't. We will, I will protect you. I won't let this happen. It's at that that Jesus says these three words. Remember them? I guess it's four. Get behind me, Satan. All Peter was doing was trying to protect Jesus. The church has taken up that task. And I think Jesus might be saying the same thing. We'll protect you from this world. That was Peter's nature. So there's Cornelius as well. He's Gentile, Peter's Jewish follower, Jesus. Gentiles are outsiders. They're rather disgusting. He's not a follower of Jesus, but he's God-fearing. I like that this is here. Many of us need, need these words today. He is not at this point a follower of Jesus, but he is God-fearing and God hears his prayers. Do you know, it's not that long ago that I had conversations with Christians who would say, do you think God hears the prayers of a lot of believers? Well, he hears one, Lord, I repent. Stop. Cornelius. He's in charge of a, a company of soldiers, a hundred. That's why he's named, a, that's why he's called a centurion. There's a century of soldiers. And he's God-fearing and strong and self-sufficient. He's this military commander. But he's one of these people, and many of us are drawn to these people, who's strong and self-sufficient, but he also is humble. He doesn't think he knows everything. In the first scene, he has a vision. One afternoon, we're told, 3 p.m., an angel appears, and Cornelius is terrified, 
And the angel says, send men to Joppa to the house of Simon the Tanner by the seaside. God knows Cornelius by name. We have so often called those who don't believe what we do, the lost. And I know the terms in scripture, but I think some of the ways that we've used them are improper. It's not that people are lost of God. It's that they don't know many times how they are loved by God. But they're not lost to God. God knows Cornelius by name. It's not that, you know, and this is kind of the, the, the feel that we have often. This is saved out there as the lost. We'll send missionaries out and rescue a few, maybe establish a beach here. Something different's happening in this passage. Cornelius is named and known, and he sends a delegation to Peter. He doesn't go, because he's a military man in charge after all, but he sends a delegation. So the second scene is the next day, around the middle of the day. Isn't it nice that the, the storyteller Luke in this account tells us the time of day when things are happening? It's noon the next day, and Peter is tired, and he goes up to the roof of Simon, Simon the Tanner. I think maybe it's hot in that place and smelly. And so Peter goes up to the roof to get some air and to pray, and he does what many of you do, and I do too sometimes when I go to pray. He falls asleep. And not just like normal sleep, but religious sleep. <laughs> A trance, the scripture says. Lord God, would you... But God gives him a vision. God gives him a vision. And it's a dirty sheets vision. Sorry. As disgusting as you might be by the term dirty sheets, it was a thousand times more disgusting than Peter when he saw. This good observant Jew zoned out religiously. Sees a sheep descend from heaven. We're told that he's hungry too. So it's the worst. It's like three terrible things. He's praying, he's in a trance, and he's hungry. He's just out. And a sheep descends with food. But it's not food that he's allowed to eat. It's the profane, the dirty, the wrong animals, the animals that if you read the rest of scripture, literally says, do not eat this. This is of the profane people. And the sheep descends and a voice says, Peter, get up and kill and eat. Peter resists. I love this. I pray for this. For many people, sorry, this is the kind of thing I pray. Peter resists and says, God, you must not know the rules that you gave. And the sheep descends again. Peter again resists, and the sheep descends a third time. Is Peter disobedient with his resistance? Of course not. He's following the rules as they were written. He knows who's in, who's out, what the lines are. He's even protecting Jesus. Or is Peter obedient? Well, eventually he is. Or is he disobedient? See, the lines of what's obedient and disobedient in Christian faith are really fuzzy. If you came here to get clear on what that is, you're in the wrong place. He obeys by disobeying. And for me, just a personal note here, I love this because I love 
Thank you, Lord Jesus, when God is an inconsistent parent. Here's the rules. Follow them, follow them, follow them. Different rules. It makes me feel better. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the word against the word. How could the Bible be against the Bible? How could the way of God be against the way of God? Here's how. Because true religion, true faith, true spiritual growth is not about moral attainment or some kind of ethical code. True faith is about people. God towards people. And if your rules are keeping you from that, I pray God will give you a vision. It's not towards some determined acceptability, it's toward people. And when you see that, you break the rules sometimes. Here's the question put to Peter, and I'm suggesting it's put to all of us. I think I do pray that this is for now. It certainly is for them. Is it possible to be faithful to God in a new way? Many would say no. Many churches are built on no. We must keep our absolutes. You've heard that before, right? Keep the lines. I've spoken somehow as if this was energy of faith itself. Karl Barth has said, if the Christian faith bears witness to no, to a no, then the Christian faith has nothing for the world. And many people in many places have heard many churches bear witness to know. We are witnesses said to the great yes that Jesus Christ, that God has spoken in Jesus Christ to all people. That's our witness. It's a yes. And this yes compels us towards the other. Here God is saying yes and Peter is reluctant. It seems sacrilegious to him. And as this is happening, the envoy from Cornelius is arriving. They're on their way. Willie James Jennings says, the old order arrived by foot, the order of status and power, military division, and a new order descends on a sheet. We look so often for new revelation, even as we've gone through the wider embrace evenings, those who know what that was, what that is, sometimes we can think, do, do we have, have we changed the rules a little bit, or is God calling us to a different understanding of the rules? It's not so much that God is giving new revelation, that's not what we ought to, get to see in terms of those rules. It's that God is calling us to new relationship. That's the way of God. Not like, oh, we used to say this was bad, now we say it's okay, and then people get all upset, right? It's new relationship we're being called to. Cornelius, known by God, is about to meet Peter, known by God. They're about to be brought together. And this is a different world of faith and faith determined by bounds. Faith bounded off from one another. The delegation from Cornelius arrives, and as they do, Peter hears again from God. And Peter hears, this is what he hears from God. You have to pray the Holy Spirit will tell you these words more than me. It's one word, and I count it properly at time. Peter says to God as the delegation arrives, Go. 
It's an amazing word. There's so much in it. Not only from the place in that house did Peter have to go, but most importantly, he had to go from his current construction of what it meant to be a faithful follower of God, of Jesus Christ. Go. Leave your previous understanding. And Peter goes. I mean, we badmouth sometimes the, you know, rigid conservatives in our lives. And I've got many of them too. But many of them hear these words, they go. It changed. Peter goes, it's miraculous. And he gets to Cornelius' house. He's gone with this delegation. They arrive together. And upon entering the house, Peter points out that it's totally against the law what he's doing. Well, first, actually, he goes to walk in, and Cornelius, this commander, falls down at his feet, and Peter gets a bit embarrassed and says, no, I'm just a person. Get up. And Cornelius gets up, and then Peter does that thing where you walk into a place that it's a home, but it feels so unlike yours. This is a weird place. Peter's looking around, and he goes, he says, you yourself know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with a Gentile. Peter is telling Cornelius, I'm breaking the rules. And then the line that should matter to all of us. But God has shown me, he's saying this to Cornelius, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or impure. Oh, that we would hear those words. So many religious things, Christian understanding have been built on the idea that we have to call people profane and impure. This is divine transgression, and Peter speaks, and he listens. He says, so why'd you call me here? There's a conversation. And then Peter speaks. He says, God shows no partiality. Peter speaks of Jesus. This is not Peter walking away from his Christian faith. It is him walking into a deeper sense of what it means to be Christian. Before the tag had even come. A deeper embrace of what it means that God has become flesh. And in doing this, Peter's speaking the name of Jesus Christ. There's no altar call. There's no demand for a response. As he's speaking to this already God-fearing man and his family, people are listening, friends and family. They're overcome with the Holy Spirit. It wasn't Peter trying to seal the deal. They're overcome with the Holy Spirit and they speak in other languages. And it becomes a big mess, which always is the case. What on earth is going on? No one, we're told, we're, there's no sin, like nobody repents, at least Luke doesn't write that down. There's no class to take, there's no denomination to join, there's no response card to fill out. And all of a sudden people are getting baptized. It's a mess without bounds and propriety. So my question to you is how did you get to God? Well, you repented and believed, right? And I know the kind of church this is. This is my kind of company. I grew up in this. You repented and believed. You made some kind of commitment. How did you get to God? Well, you determined then to live a life reflecting Christian values. And there were always people like me and others who were willing to tell you what those values were. Some people told you who didn't hold them. And they made you kind of feel special that you were different than other people. You're different than them. Who are those non-believers? And they need you. 
get to God? It's not the question, the first and most important one. Of course the question is, how did God get to you? Bart puts it this way. The Bible tells us not how we should talk with God, but what God says to us. Not how we find our way to God, but how God has found the way to us. Cornelius, your name. Not the right relation in which we must place ourselves to God. See, we have all these categories. This is why we would not be here today, because if Peter hadn't gone there and this category hadn't been broken, we are the ones outside. If God was about bounds and excluding people, we would not be included in this meeting, would not be happening today. So I see a series of checkboxes. You know how you get to God? Well, um, grew up in a Christian home, check. Went to church, check. Not really in church, but still go from time to time, so there's a check. Um, maybe you need pray to prayer. Pray to prayer, check. Denomination, wrong denomination, X. Catholic, X. Evangelical, X. Whatever it might be. Somebody whose box doesn't fit, right? Or believe not quite the right thing. Or have the wrongs we've talked about in these evenings. Our sexuality doesn't check the box. Whatever it might be. Who do we think we are to exclude others? It's not the right relation in which we must place ourselves to God, but it's how he is related to us. And then Peter speaks a name. Peter speaks a name. We know. He names Jesus. Our church also, the Christian church, is not called to worship a virtue. Right? We don't gather to worship even the best of all virtues, love. We worship Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of all those best virtues. But we worship Jesus Christ in such a way that no one, honestly, is excluded. And you might feel this the most if you've been to churches that say, all are welcome, and you walk in and realize, not quite all. To somehow turn the name of Jesus into something that requires this division, Peter opens for Cornelius that God has spoken in Jesus Christ a yes. As much as God knows the name Cornelius, he knows the name of every person who doesn't believe what we believe. And our mission must change to not be defined by bounds, but to be defined by what does it mean that we're compelled by that yes. And the response is dictated not by Peter, not by a church program, but by the Spirit. The Spirit says. Imagine for a moment if Jesus Christ was a keeper of bounds. None of us know. And I think it's a beginning that somehow we haven't taken up yet. I still feel, I feel the church is still pretty primitive. Nobody thinks they're living in a primitive time. Nobody's ever thought that. You know, cave people didn't think this is a really cavey primitive time. They thought they were rather advanced, and so do you. And we still worship in such a way that they require divisions. 
Jesus Christ is the breaker of bounds. Peter becomes the breaker of bounds, and in this, the gospel is proclaimed. Cornelius, Peter, and others, Simon and Tanner, brought together in faith that is towards people, not away from them. I, as I say, don't know what it looks like yet. But I think that we can see in this world, we don't have to look far. It's killing some of us. Some of you are depressed over these things. And I understand that you can see a world that's defined by divisions. And sometimes those divisions are most loudly declared by people with the name Christian. May God forgive us. I don't know what it looks like yet. But I think we might just hear the word go. What does a new church look like? Still scripture, still love for tradition, even testimony and faith, but new. Bearing witness to the yes of God. Bearing witness to the yes of God in Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, I'm mindful that when so many of us have experienced and sometimes upheld a faith of bounds and boundaries. Many others have pushed away. Sometimes um, the important words is virtue, which I understand. I think it's, it's better than the boundaries. Lord Jesus, would you help us to know how to pray in 